historian James Spanner, you've been involved in editing a study of the American presidency through a single lens, presidential misconduct. What's the value of a single metric in looking at a U.S. presidency? Well, I think it's, it's narrow, it's circumscribed, and it remains useful. Um, our situation now is a critical one, and um, a, a study that provides a kind of general metric for historians, for citizens, for anybody who wants to learn about the history of this particular topic, which is presidential misdoings, um, it's a way of getting into the subject. I have to point out that historians themselves don't study misconduct as a discrete subject of inquiry. Certainly there have been studies of the misconduct of this, that, and the other presidential administration. But historians themselves don't consider this a study, a subject about which they give courses or lead their graduate students to do research in, in preparation for a dissertation and so on. It's, it's something that has sort of bubbled up twice in the last 45 years, but doesn't seem to have any academic or other consequences. So I, before we get into the, the why, you suggest that this is a particularly valuable time to do something like this. And obviously your publisher agreed and the others involved in the project agreed. What, what, are, what are you saying about the times we're in and why it lends itself to this? Well, I think that since the 1970s, since the Nixon administration, this is the second constitutional crisis we've had and one of this depth. The Trump presidency? The Trump presidency which is not covered in this book. The same way in the original report to the House impeachment inquiry, we stopped with the Lyndon Johnson administration. We did not venture into the Nixon administration, which was taking place as we were preparing that report. And for very good reason. The administration wasn't over. Its full record couldn't be known. The archives about that administration, like the ones of, about the Trump administration, are unavailable to us. And so we prudently, I think, stopped because both of these reports, this expanded version of the older one, were to provide a general, the general groundwork for people like you and me to make the comparisons on their own. Well, tell me the story of how the first one got put together. Well, um, I'll, I'll be brief about it. John Doerr, who had been appointed the general counsel of the House impeachment inquiry, um, thought of the utility of a report like this and turned to his friend Van Woodward, C. Van Woodward, member of the Yale faculty, and asked Woodward to be the kind of uh, commander-in-chief of a project of preparing such a report, which was unprecedented, as Van said in the, uh, the uh, introduction to the original volume. 1974. And he, he, he asked three people to be his field generals, and they identified and recruited about 12 historians to write one, two, or three sketches of that many presidencies. And I was chosen to be one. We had eight weeks to do it. It was a day before fax, before email, before digitization. So it was done by telephone and by mail. And we managed to do it in eight weeks. And we submitted it, Professor Woodward submitted it to John Doerr. And that's the last we heard of it. And six weeks later, the president resigned. What was done with the report is not entirely clear. Um, Dorr was, was uh, going to give it to the members of the impeachment inquiry. I spoke with and corresponded with some of those members in 1974 and 75. They didn't even know of the report. So the members of the committee never saw it. So it was of no use to the committee.
It was in the public domain. Dell Publishing Company published the book, and it dropped from sight. We were exhausted then, as I think we are now. No one wanted to think about presidential misconduct. They wanted to put it behind them. And historians, most historians have never heard of the book. So how did it come to be published again in 2019? <laughs> There's another set of coincidences. Um, I was sitting at work on another book one year ago this month, August of 2018, the phone rang and it was my fellow historian Jill Lepore, who's known to many people as a writer for The New Yorker as well as a, as a very well-published historian, a member of the Harvard History Department, and she said, Jim, what is this? I've just spotted a citation to this book and I've never heard of it, which was also surprising. I told her about it, and in the course of the conversation, such as the one that you and I are having here, because I, I, I've been so involved in another project, I said to her, you know, now that I think about it, now that you're pressing me for information, it occurs to me that an updated version of the 1974 report would be very timely. And about two days later, I started getting inquiries from editors at The New Yorker, so I knew that she'd written something. And the last sentence of her article in the talk of the town was, James Banner says, perhaps it's time for another version of this book. And then my phone started ringing. <laughs> so I turned it over to my agent and said, you handle this. So it was kind of off the cuff remark that I made that this new project sort of fell into my lap. So uh, what uh, did you do to update the book from the 1974 version? I identified and recruited seven other historians. They had 12 weeks. They had one month longer than we had 45 years ago. And they did their job, so I had a full text in hand, edited, everybody read each other's contributions, and submitted it to the press in January of, uh, of this year. So five months later, the book came out. Were the prior chapters on presidents up to President Nixon revisited? They were not. They were published word for word, except for typos and a few, a few terms that didn't seem suitable for our age, but there may be been two or three of those changed. No change, no change in the pagination. So what we did, we added uh, sketches of the seven presidencies from Richard Nixon through the presidency of Barack Obama and stopped. How many of the original historian groups are still around? About half of the 14 who worked with me and do they know that the project has been revisited? Oh, yes, and they have copies of the book, and I called upon them for, for information from their files. And I'm, I'm very pleased. I wish that all of them were alive to see this. If someone had asked me 45 years ago if I was going to be alive in 45 years, I probably would have giggled. If someone had asked me if I thought we'd be in the same constitutional and political soup 45 years from then, I think I probably would have laughed. And here we are. What are the parameters that the historians worked under, both originally and in this time? Um, they were given an assignment, I was given an assignment, and I kept the same assignment for the new authors, for the, for the, up, for the updated version that I had gotten, and that was factual accounting only, no interpretations, no connective tissue between episodes between presidencies, between episodes within presidencies. And in some respects, and this is a very unusual kind of history for the 20th and 21st centuries, it's more like a medieval chronicle where you're just putting facts on the paper and not interpreting them. It's very much against the historian's grain, and yet everybody did their job. And I'll tell, let me relate one 
other a short tale about this. When I was writing my introduction, I was very well aware of the fact that I, too, had to keep hands off. I could indicate that it was our current problem that, that occasioned the book, but nothing else. I submitted it to all the authors, and I said, I want a reading from you. And all of the authors, most of whom I would guess are on the left, center, left side of the spectrum, said, dial it back even more. I mean, everybody realized that this had to be as devoid of interpretation, had to be as politically and partisanly neutral as possible. And I think we've, we've brought that off. I'm, I'm very satisfied with the project on that ground. Well, picking up on that thought, when people hear Jill Lepore, The New Yorker, Yale University, uh, they're going to think, especially if they are right of center, this is just not a fair, uh, a fair accounting for the guys on our side of the spectrum. How would you respond to that? Well, first of all, I'd urge them to read the book before any charges were leveled, and I do that right, left, or center, and then try to make of the accounting what you will. This is a book that is really written as a civic project for our fellow citizens, for yours and mine, to make of the record what they can and wish to make of it. And I'm having trouble making something of it. I mean, it, it seems to me that it suggests many things, and no doubt we'll talk about that in this conversation. Um, I think they'd be wrong if they charge any of us with any partisan views. What constitutes misconduct? Um, two things. One is illegal actions, actions contrary to law. And the other is corruption, which I suppose can best be defined as the use of public office for private gain. Now, there's nothing set in stone about what you and I would agree upon as corruption. And there may be instances that are left out of this book that we've just overlooked. And we didn't change anything from Lyndon Johnson back to George Washington. It could be that there are things in here that people would differ with and say don't belong here. That, that would be a fair argument. I don't think there are. Because we all, all of us, in, in both versions of this, this kind of manuscript, oversaw each other and discussed with each other what should go in and what should not go in. So I've, if, we've, if, if there are some omissions, there are very, very few. And you say and explain in the introduction that the personal misconduct is not on the table in your study. Um, that's correct. Um, uh, actions that you and I would consider to be chargeable against presidents or members of their official families are not in here. For example, Rover Cleveland fathered a child out of wedlock. We know that Jack Kennedy was not exactly uh, an obedient uh, husband. Um, but those, except those that came to public life, to public light, which they did starting with President Clinton, those find their way into the book because they affected our understanding of the presidency and his ability to govern. Is moral turpitude covered, for example, slaveholding? No. And why not? Because um, uh, it, those were not considered to be corrupt at the time, and they were, presidents were not charged with slaveholding publicly, in other words, um, by political opponents, and the slaveholding question didn't come up to 
the level where they were chargeable and held personally accountable for the fact that slavery was legal in the United States. Okay, so now that we understand the parameters, what are the major times that uh, the public's understanding of misconduct changed during the presidency? That's a very good question. Um, the original understanding of corruption and misconduct had to do with attacks on the body politics. I mean, the, this country was born in a concern for overweening executive power out of Great Britain. And so corruption, the whole notion of corruption was the misuse of public office uh, for illegal purposes. And so the question of power and excessive power and the overuse of power by presidents or members of Congress or the courts was very much in the minds of the early presidents. The first instance of a president being charged with personal misconduct while in office was James Monroe. And that was in the 1820s. And that's when we begin to see a shift in the, the standards of conduct that are going to be uh, pressed on presidents and their official families. It was then that the size of the government began to grow. It was then that the gentry began to lose hold of the government and more of the people, which would be adult white males. The, the democracy began to take place, particularly in John Quincy Adams and then Andrew Jackson's presidencies. And as the size of the government grew, of course, the chances for boodling, for taking advantage of public office, for um, gaining money because of service and so on grew. And so the standards then by, by the 1840s had come, the, the, the standards of, of right and good and meet conduct had come to be, to involve personal conduct. You observe about how we do compared to other countries in terms of corruptions. What's the answer? That I don't know. It's, it's, it's impossible to tell. And I've had an additional thought since writing that introduction. Um, as far as I know, there are not standards of misconduct in any of the countries that are analogous to, own, to our own and the representative democracies of the Western world um, or in others. But that's sort of on the same level. We don't really have any comparisons between the federal government and the state and urban governments. And I would wager the fact, I am willing to, to venture as a working hypothesis, that the record of the federal government is certainly no worse than that of state and local governments, and perhaps better. Dan Woodward wrote in his introduction in 1974, moralists are not able to establish a correlation between the state of the nation and the presidency. That's correct. So we could have a bad president and the country could still be in good straits, oh, is that oh, what that absolutely. means? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the, the, the um, most striking example of this are the two presidencies of Grover Cleveland, four years apart, and the intervening one of, of Benjamin Harrison, 12 years, right in the middle of the Gilded Age, which is terribly corrupt terribly corrupt at the corporate level, at the urban level, everything else, and their three administrations were absolutely clean of corruption. So there doesn't seem to be any fit, and nor is there a fit between the moral rectitude of the president and the record of his, so far his, presidency. For example, Warren Harding was completely free of personal corruption, 
but his two and a half years in office were one of the dirtiest and most corrupt in American history. That's because he didn't oversee his administration, didn't set firm rules of conduct, didn't fire the miscreants, and so on. He was incapable of doing that. But he went out of, out of office with clean hands. So there's two characteristics. One is the personal integrity of the office holder. The other exactly. is their leadership skills. Exactly, yes. Uh, you also, another quote from the introduction, a besetting fault among presidents under fire was a dogged and misplaced loyalty to subordinates under fire. And that happens time and time again. We see it today. We saw it starting with, really, with Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson and Madison, actually, at some degree, uh, even John Adams couldn't get rid of James Wilkinson. He was one of the greatest scoundrels in American history that many people haven't heard of. He was in the pay of Spain. He engaged himself in at least one plot to dismember the Union. And neither Jefferson nor Madison could find a way to bring him to book and to throw him out. Madison finally found a way to do so during the War of 1812 because Wilkinson messed up a command in battle. But there's some, there's some circumstances where you can't. And, of course, the presidents are political officers. They govern the United States. The United States has always been a complex nation-state and has only gotten more so. And it's hard for a president to discipline um, ill-conducting cabinet officers and others without looking over his shoulder as to who will criticize him for having disciplined that cabinet officer. I mean, there are political constituencies that the president has to answer to and has to govern and has to keep in mind. So it's a very complex situation. That doesn't mean that you and I shouldn't often demand of a president that someone be fired or want someone fired. But it's more difficult, I think, in the sociology of the presidency to get rid of a subordinate than you and I think it is. Well, you tell us that the Founding Fathers anticipated the uh, limitations of, uh, of mankind, and our Constitution and further Supreme Court uh, limitations uh, do offer some avenues. I just want to read the list. The ban on emoluments in the Constitution, the weapon of impeachment, uh, the Congress giving Congress the power to declare war, the veto override that Congress has, later on the two-term limit on the mm -hmm. presidency, and in general congressional oversight. How have these instruments worked in keeping a line on the people holding highest office? Well, I think we should always be worried that they don't work well enough. Um, the rule of law is that law has dominion over men. Um, but James Madison was worried that everything that he had helped put in the Constitution were mere parchment barriers, as he called them famously. Um, and I think that it's proven, if you look at the record, it's proven that a lot of misconduct that has provably taken place has not been punished. Indictments fail. One presidency is over, and so, so the hearings and the indictments don't lead to anything. The press isn't vigilant enough. A Congress won't act. Um, the courts declare certain uh, actions to be either um, uh, or to, to, be, to be unpunishable and, and approve of them. So it depends. this is where things differ from presidency to presidency because the situation in the Congress with the press, with the citizens too. I mean, the citizens 
um, may be unvigilant. And it's up to the citizens, to people like you and me, to bring a presidency up short and to make it act under law. And if the citizens don't demand that, it's hard for the organs of governments to do so. Well, you wrote more, most specifically about that in your introduction. Most worrisome is that long experience has thrown doubt on the founders' conviction that an informed and active citizenry backed by a robust free press and represented by a responsible Congress, so there's a triad there, uh, will always or easily prevail against corruption at the highest reaches of government. I stick with that statement. Have all three legs of that stool failed? No, they've never, they haven't failed entirely. In fact, I think that we, sh we should be happy that they've succeeded as well as they have. But they are not guaranteed to work. They work in situations which change from year to year, presidency to presidency. The Supreme Court's composition changes. The composition of the Congress, the political control of the Houses of Congress change. And um, the press sometimes doesn't do its job. So I think that we have to we have to be wary of the failure of our institutions and of ourselves. So I'm going to invite people who are interested to find the, the, the volume and look upon the earlier, the 1974 version. What we thought we would do for this interview is concentrate on the new set of presidents that Fine. you have edited and also add some video from our library to uh, demonstrate some of the presidential responses to the actions Good. described. So we're going to start, of course, with Richard Nixon, who was the genesis of this book. The two historians were Catherine Olmsted and Eric Rochway. What should we know about them and their analysis of him? Well, they are, they are historians, husband and wife, at the University of California, Davis. And they're experts on the presidency. I mean, they study the modern 20th and 21st century presidencies, as do all of the authors that um, I recruited for this expanded volume. Um, when I was reading their text, and when I've read it over in its published volume, I must say I found the recounting of Nixon's presidency, which I lived through, to be absolutely dizzying. And it, it represented a departure in the history of presidential misconduct on two grounds, and they're very important to keep in mind today. Previous to Nixon's administration, presidents had been caught up in mis the misdoings of their subordinates and occasionally had acted illegally. But never before had misconduct been orchestrated out of the Oval Office until the 1970s. And that was an extraordinary departure. I mean, the president was caught breaking the law and urging others to break the law, both constitutional law and criminal law. That had never happened before. Nor, and relatedly, had a president ever before been named in a case at law as an unindicted co-conspirator. So the Nixon administration represented a really large break with the previous history of misconduct to the degree that that can be pulled out from the histories of all administrations. I'm betting that our listeners and viewers are well aware of the contours of the Watergate mm -hmm. uh, scenario. Have we learned anything important about that in the years since it happened? With well, new files opened. I mean, the question I would ask, who, who are the we? Um, I think the, those people who know the history of the country and the history of the American presidency would say that it ought to have made us more vigilant, and certainly some laws were passed in consequence of Watergate. Um, 
the, the, the Nixon presidency, however, did not give us an example of the effective impeachment, trial, and conviction of a president, and that president being forced from office. And Nixon resigned on his own. Remember, he was, never, he was never impeached by the House of Representatives and never stood trial before the Senate. Um, but um, I don't think one has to be cynical to be worried as to whether we've learned a lesson. If we think of we as the members of Congress and of the courts as representing us, I'm not certain that you can count on either of those branches at any particular time to do a job that you and I might want them to do or might want them not to do. I mean, remember, they too are working in a political context and they too have to realize that they're they have to maintain the integrity of their institutions. They have to do the voters' bidding. They have to maintain the, the process of law through time. And those are not easy jobs. So you can't assume that just because a president has acted illegally that he's going to be brought to book by the Congress or by the courts. So in addition to the discussion of Watergate in his chapter, uh, also there were two um, uh, other scandals that were highlighted that I wanted to just very briefly get on the table. One is the Chenault affair, uh, which we learned about most recently in John Farrell's uh, biography of Richard Nixon. Can you tell us very quickly what that was involved well, with? Well, the, the Chenault affair um, uh, surprised me because the rules of the, of the book were that the book would only deal with the presidencies nothing before the presidencies, nothing if someone had been a governor or a member of the House, nothing like that, just through the presidency. But it turned out that the Chenault affair, in which Nixon threw Madame Chenault, um, subverted the Johnson administration's effort to bring the Vietnam War to a halt. It was so egregious, and it was so clearly in contravention of the Logan Act that prevented private that that prohibits private citizens from dealing in 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 concert with other governments to representing the American the United States government in which they hold no office. Um, it was so egregious that we thought it had to be made part of the sketch of Nixon because it was leading up to the kind of behavior that he engaged in in the White House. In other words, it was heedless of the canons of law and of laws on the books. Nixon just overlooked them. He just just refused to heed them. What was Operation Menu, which uh, you write in the, or was written in the book that the Judiciary Committee knew about this and even considered it as a p potential part of a possible impeachment process? Yes, I, I don't know enough about that. Okay. Um, it, a, a note on it, it was new material that was just classified during the Clinton administration and then further yes, came to yeah, light. Yes, that's right, yes. So uh, Richard Nixon, after he left office, gave a very series, a very, excuse me, famous series of interviews to David yeah. Frost, and we pulled one clip of that from May of 1977. I'd like you to watch and tell us what your reaction is. So what, in a sense, you're saying is that there are certain situations, and the Houston plan or that part of it was one of them, where the president can decide that it's in the best interest of the nation or something and do something illegal. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. By definition. Exactly. Your reaction? Well, I don't think that one can hear that again and again and not be horrified by the statement. If we're to be a government uh, of law 
And if the presidents are supposed to meet the canons of the law, and they're not to be above the law, that statement makes no sense. Um, and I don't think a Supreme, a Supreme Court asked through some case to rule on that would have to say no, it seems to me. It's contrary to the entire history and tradition and ethos of American constitutional government. How did uh, the uh, Congress respond in law to some of the uh, actions of the Nixon administration? Well, it held hearings. Oh, I'm thinking about uh, changing the law, like the War Powers Act uh, and other things that they did to put some constraints on the actions of a president. Well, the ones of which I am most conversant, because I was working uh, to some degree in the 70s to bring them about, or were what um, fetters there are on campaign financing, on conflict of interest legislation you know, that, that, that reduced the orbit in which conflicts of interest are permitted, and, and so on. Um, there were not there were there were no grand changes i mean there obviously weren't changes that have prohibited subsequent in, uh, administrations from acting outside the law or corruptly well would you consider the creation of the independent council uh, a substantial change well the, yes the independent council act but there were independent councils very early in the 20th century you know in some respects you didn't need that act in order for an administration to appoint an independent council I'm going to move on to the Ronald Reagan administration because the parameters I chose in the interest in time were two-term presidencies. So uh, Ronald Reagan, it was a uh, chapter was written by Jerome Suri, and you edited it. Well, who is Jerome Suri? Um, Jeremy Suri. He's a he's a historian at the University of Texas Austin, and is also an expert on the modern presidency. His first name is Jeremy. Jeremy, yes. Thank you for correcting that. So uh, here's a, a conclusion he drew about Ronald Reagan. And we were talking before that there weren't very many chapters with conclusions, but this one had one. His conclusion that was that, uh, I'm, I'm uh, not quoting directly, but that Ronald Reagan was a modest man who didn't succumb personally to greed uh, and, and, except for the Iran-Contra situation, was law-abiding and acting within constitutional boundaries. you agree with that assessment? I do. I do. And I think it's usually the case with presidents, and those who are tripped up are tripped up accidentally. Um, Reagan was caught expressing an untruth. Um, whether it slipped out of his mouth or not, one never knows. But aside from that, he was an uncorruptible man. And yet, during those years, what are highlighted was the EPA scandal, the HUD scandal, the savings and loan crisis, uh, which cost the taxpayers $124 billion, uh, and uh, then the Iran-Contra, which we mentioned. So how does the president get himself into situations like this if he is basically law-abiding and constitutionally well, minded? Well, the, 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 the first way is by personality and disposition. I mean, a president has to be willing to make the hard decisions to fire people um, or to make certain that the Congress gets all the information, all the evidence it needs to complete its own hearings on someone's honesty, incorruptibility, corruptibility, and so on. That didn't happen in Reagan administration. And it happened, hasn't happened many times. I mean, Grant, uh, Harding, whom I've mentioned, um, uh, and Reagan, I mean, they're prime examples, uh, Harry Truman, they're prime examples of presidents who could simply not bring themselves to get rid of people who are malefactors. And um, I think the current president, is to some degree, has the same kind of personality. I mean, it's very hard for him to let someone go. And I think if you think about your own life, 
and your colleagues and people that you've um, had to um, be uh, a, a supervisor of, you know how hard it is to let people go. I mean, I think it's just intrinsically a difficult thing, but if you're president of the United States, you've got to be prepared for the public's good, for the country's good, to take those steps, and some presidents haven't been. You've mentioned a couple times that this president doesn't let people go, but if you look at statistics, the vacancy or the turnover rate in his administration is a great deal higher than the, his previous uh, president. It, so it is, it is. Is that a contradiction? No, I don't think so, because some of those people have, have resigned under pressure. Um, some of the some of the positions haven't been filled, um, and some were caught, were forced out of office, and and um, and some decided just to leave because they they didn't feel himself fit for the job. Jeremy Sori says, we're going back to Ronald Reagan, of Iran-Contra, that it was the most significant constitutional crisis since Watergate. Why, why would he come to that conclusion? Or, or, and do you agree? Well, it was, it was flagrantly illegal, taking money from one pot, using it to promote policies that had not been approved by Congress, and covering up the whole business. And that's about as serious a constitutional um, uh, uh, step, uh, unconstitutional step that a president or president's administration can take. I mean, cover-ups are what have gotten presidents into hot water. And they try to shield themselves from the truth, which embarrasses them or might catch them up in corrupt or illegal dealings. I mean, it's, again, it seems to me it's an it's an understandable and a very, a very common human trait to try to cover up what you've done wrong. But you can't do it if you're president. You try to. Sometimes you get away with it. Sometimes you don't. Back to our video library. This is the March 4th, 1987 address to the nation when President Reagan explained uh, Iran-Contra from his perspective. A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. As the Tower Board reported, what began as a strategic opening to Iran deteriorated in its implementation into trading arms for hostages. He apologizes. He admits there was an error made. He doesn't clearly take responsibility. Um, it's about as much as I think we could have expected. What do you think of uh, his response and other presidents' responses to crises like these within their administration? Getting on the television, holding a, a national televised address. Well, of course, that couldn't. That would like not have been done before, say, Lyndon Johnson's administration. Maybe John Kennedy's administration. You wouldn't have gotten on television and spoken to the nation. Um, I think a forthright admission of error or guilt is always the best way to go. It's one of the hardest human uh, expressions to, 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 to it's, it's just so hard to admit to wrongdoing and to error and to stupidity. But if it were done more often, I think the presidency, any presidency would be stronger for it. That might be a good segue into our next two-term presidency, that of William Jefferson Clinton. Uh, Katie Brunell was the historian chosen for that. Uh, how did you match those topics up? What was her uh, set of credentials coming into this? Well, she's a historian at, at Purdue University. She too has done a lot on the, on, on the Clinton presidency. Um, 
I mean, obviously, I turned to historians who were known for their work on various presidencies, and um, she was an ideal candidate, and, and, and like the others, I think, did a splendid job. So uh, one of the points that uh, Dr. Brunel makes in this is that during the, the campaign, the first campaign, the establishment of the campaign war room to respond to charges that came up during the campaign became a lasting model for the Clintons. Would you talk about that? Well, there's not much, I think, to say. It has proven to be a model, um, but it's an institution, if we can call it that, that has as many dangers as it does possible benefits. The it, war room it is? The war room, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, because it, it's maintaining a campaign, um, but the campaign can also be trying to cover things up. And we've seen that, we saw that in the Clinton administration. We may be seeing it today, although it has yet to be proven. Um, and again, like so many institutions, it has its strengths and its weaknesses, and I think that it's, it's probably now always going to be the case there's going to be a campaign war room. Did the Clintons invent it? Had prior presidencies employed it? I think such? so. I think so, yeah. So the, uh, some of the issues handled in the Clinton chapter are Travelgate, which led to the suicide of Vince Foster, Hillary Clinton's longtime friend from Arkansas, the Whitewater investigation involving real estate investments done with uh, Arkansans James and Susan McDougall. Uh, how do they fit into the parameters uh, that you established for us at the beginning of what would be covered and what wouldn't? One thing that happened during the Clinton presidency is that the presidency became fodder for um, television, for cable television, and for talk radio. So Bill Clinton was the first presidency who had to face that racket, had to face that kind of opposition, had to face clips and comments going viral digitally on television and by radio. And Travelgate and Whitewater were to some degree hatched in that, in that context, in that political and partisan situation. Um, and every president since then has had to be on guard from those kinds of attacks, from the right and from the left. I mean, no one's going to escape it now. Um, and I'm not certain that Travelgate was very important, but it sort of set the tone for that administration when <laughs> Clinton's Republican opponents found they could get under his skin, and they did that throughout. And same with the Monica Lewinsky affair. I mean, it was his own errors that kept it before the news. After all, he tried to cover up, which is the, which is the foolish, most foolish thing that a president can do, as tempting as it is to try to do it. He didn't get away with it. He was almost impeached. Uh, by uh, Ken Starr's investigation uh, and pointed to it. And uh, ultimately, uh, 16 criminal convictions came out of those investigations. Mm -hmm. uh, and here we have another clip from our library of President Clinton explaining his response to the investigation. As you know, in a deposition in January, I was asked questions about my relationship with Monica Lewinsky. While my answers were legally accurate, I did not volunteer information. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. Another Oval Office address, or White House address rather, to the nation. Uh, what is he saying here? Well, he's accepting responsibility there and admitting that he did something wrong. And I think in some respects, he was a, he, well, certainly he was trying to clear the air 
And in some respects, he succeeded in doing so. After all, his presidency went to its end. Um, yes, but the train was pretty far out of the station by the time this happened, was it not? Yes, yes, yeah. And sure, it was too late, of course, but at least he did it. And maybe other presidents will learn, some have not since then, that you it's better to admit it early on than to wait until it all comes out and you're forced by circumstances to go on television as he was forced. So what He should, didn't look very happy. What should uh, those who care about the presidency take away from the process that this presidency actually had an impeachment inquiry, the House voted articles of impeachment, and it went to the Senate? Well, I wish I could say that presidents learn from each other, and I'm not certain they do. I mean, they're, they, they're, they're in their own circumstance. They've been elected on the grounds that they've sought office. They have the supporters they do, they have the cabinets and the White House staff that they do, and they're caught up in, a, in circumstances that differ presidency from presidency. And there are not many presidents, certainly in the 20th, in the, I would say since Harry Truman's day, who have been as deeply versed in history as you would want them to be. Jack Kennedy, certainly. But very few are, and I don't think the presidents have the time and are inclined to consult history, and I'm not certain that history tells you very clear, teaches very clear lessons. It offers evidence of what can happen to you. It doesn't show, give evidence as to what will happen to you. If the war room and also cable news and, and later uh, internet came out of this era, uh, is there anything else that changed as a result of the Clinton presidency? Is there, do we scrutinize presidents in a new way that we hadn't before? Well, I think that president's personal behavior now are, are completely open, uh, open field for inquiry, for investigative reporting, for criticism, for humor. And certainly humor now it, it makes mincemeat of these chief executives who stray. Um, and I don't think that, that genie is ever going to be put back in the bottle. I think the presidents now have to understand, those who run for office, that their past life and career, as well as every instant in the White House, is going to be observed, evaluated, criticized, and reported on. I don't think there's any escape from it. It's a, it's a, it's a much more difficult job than it was 50 years ago. To the George W. Bush presidency, the historians for this chapter, Catherine Olmsteck and Eric Rochway, am I saying that correctly? Rochway, yes. Um, so in this chapter, things that were omitted, weren't included, were the 2008 financial crisis, mm -hmm. uh, the war in Iraq, mm -hmm. and his response to Hurricane Katrina. All things that people look at his presidency and I'm, judge. I'm, I'm glad you brought those up. These, there are a lot of... Uh, to write the history of presidencies through misconduct is completely to misconstrue the nature of presidencies. Let's take Harry Truman's presidency as an example. Truman's presidency was one of the most corrupt in the 20th century. He couldn't get rid of his cronies from Missouri. He kept people in the White House staff who were boodling, were taking money from, from the, 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 the federal treasury and so on. It was Harry Truman who made the awful decisions to drop the two bombs on Japan. It was Harry Truman who managed the Berlin airlift. It was Harry Truman who created what's called the Truman Doctrine. It was Harry Truman who oversaw the Marshall Plan. It was Harry Truman who was off in office when NATO was established. Now, if you try to write the history of the Truman administration on the grounds of the misconduct of the White House then, 
you're not really writing the history of the Truman administration. And I think the same thing goes with the George W. Bush administration. There are certain things that Americans always debate, but they, just because people don't like them and oppose them doesn't mean that they're illegal or that they're corrupt. And um, take James Madison's trying to federalize the New England militia during the War of 1812. This was a policy dispute he had. It never went to the court. Um, take Harry Truman's d decision to seize the steel mills in, uh, when was that, 1950-51. Um, it was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, but it was not a corrupt move, and the same with the decision to go to war in Iraq. Bush's failure to see adequately to Katrina, there was nothing illegal about those and there was nothing corrupt about them. It, they weren't misconduct. It was bad, bad politics, it was bad executive behavior, but it wasn't actionable at law. Well, things that were covered by the historians was Enron yes. and Halliburton, uh, the post-September 11th program of warrantless wiretapping, uh, the Valerie Plame exposure, uh, and uh, which brought Scooter Lib Libby to public attention, and then the whole policy towards torture. Other than the torture one, which I have a clip on, you want to comment on any of the others, uh, the warrantless wiretapping, Enron, et cetera? Well, the one that stands out to me there is Valerie Plame, and um, the exposure of her name as having been a secret CIA operative abroad. I mean, that was clearly illegal. And it was clearly injurious to American strategic intelligence and security. Um, the administration acted contrary to law. And that's why that was in there. Um, y you and I might debate as to whether it did any lasting damage to American intelligence abilities. I don't know that. I don't think anybody does yet. But it was clearly contrary to law. And that's why it was in the book. We have a clip of President George W. Bush from October 5th, 2007, and this is on torture policy in the wake of 9-11. Let's listen to the president. This government does not torture people. You know, we, 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 we stick to U.S. law and our international obligations. The American people expect their government to take action to protect them from further attack. And that's exactly what this government is doing and that's exactly what we'll continue to do. Well, those two statements don't fit together. I mean, certainly it's the government's um, responsibility. Uh, the president's taken oath of office to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. So you have to protect the security of the United States. The question is whether you have to torture people in order to do so and whether that torture is legal or illegal. And I don't think President Bush's two statements um, touch at all. I think one second one he made here was absolutely correct. The first one was probably not. Did 9-11 change any expectations on the part of the public about how our government should re uh, respond to an, an attack of that size and nature? Um, probably for a time. How long-lasting that has been, I do not know. So here's the conclusion that the two historians made of the Bush presidency. In the case of misconduct unrelated to the administration's aims, such as Enron, for example, the administration was willing to sever its ties with officials. But when core policies appeared to violate statutes, the government under Bush proved adroit in discovering new legal rationales 
and with the assistance of Congress and later administrations retrospectively rendering actions lawful, even though most lawyers and lawmakers understood them to be criminal. I think that's correct. How was Congress complicit or acted to uh, revisit some of these actions? Well, it didn't hold hearings on a lot of these developments, and it didn't pass laws that might have prevented them, and didn't insist that the people be brought to, to justice who had committed these illegal acts. I mean, very little was done about torture. Very few people were, were held responsible. Moving on to the Barack Obama administration, uh, something else changed. We mentioned earlier about cable news and the Internet. By the time uh, President Obama came in, he held the first Twitter town hall. Mm -hmm. So uh, a fact of presidencies from President Obama forward is not just the Internet, but social media. Mm -hmm. How has that changed the office? Well, it's certainly given uh, executive officers, presidents and others a new opening to the citizenry and um, a speedy one. So a president doesn't have to go before a Congress or arrange uh, an appearance in Chicago or seek television coverage. He or she can simply tweet something. And certainly President Trump has, has, has made an art of, of, of that uh, opportunity. Um, in some respects, it, it makes the, brings the president closer to the citizens. On the other hand, as we've seen, um, it doesn't necessarily improve the veracity of the statements that the presidents can make. On the flip side, it is also a very rapid spreader of information and misinformation. How has that impacted the White House? Well, it's like all sources of information. The rapidity is what makes the difference here because the press, the, the press doesn't have a chance right away to assess it. It may assess it by the next morning's papers or by the evening news. I mean, certainly the assessing mechanisms of the United States are still available to us, to the citizenry. But tweets mix up the soup because they they convey both fact and error, um, truth and untruths. And But media have always been doing that. If you think that colonial newspapers and newspapers in early republic were free of, 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 of uh, uh, inaccuracy, of false charges, of, of scurrility and corruption, uh, you, 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 you misconstrue the nature of the press 200 years ago. The historian that reviewed the Barack Obama presidency for misconduct was Alan Lickman. He's pretty well known to the C-SPAN audience, I'd say, based here in Washington, as are you, and famous for his keys to the presidency Mm -hmm. that he produces each year. Uh, What did he say about the Obama administration? Well, he thought it to be reasonably free of corruption, which I must take his word for it. It seems to have been. barring further revelations. I mean, one of the things that I think we have to learn is that it it takes many years to close the history of any administration. We're still learning things, as you uh, mentioned earlier, about the Nixon administration, the Chenault affair being the most recent revelation um, about that presidency. Chances are we're going to learn more things about the Bush and the Clinton and the um, the Obama administrations. Um, But I think for now, uh, his assessment seems to stand up, and those who evaluated that uh, chapter of the book uh, agreed with him. 
while we're on that topic, as a, as a historian, what do you think about the current policies about presidential records retention and release, and also the creation of the digital archives by the Obama administration? Well, um, uh, federal records are being released always too solely for historians, but more or less as I think the law anticipated. The digital records, um, we'll, we'll see how accurate they are and how full they are. Um, but I think that's just another medium and another form of the availability of evidence. It doesn't change the evidence itself. The uh, four uh, scandals that critics focused on and uh, Alan Lickman wrote about in the Obama administration, and uh, C-SPAN viewers will remember these because in this case, I think there were congressional hearings, many congressional hearings on each one of these. The IRS targeting of conservative mm -hmm. groups, the Solyndra loan, which was about uh, a, a solar uh, panels, $535 million lost in the, to the taxpayer in that one. Fast and Furious, which was uh, gun policy across Mexico, and uh, Benghazi, the mm -hmm. uh, American post in Libya, and uh, the Hillary Clinton scandals involving the uh, email server and the Clinton Foundation. What, what should we think about those in terms of Barack Obama's conduct of the presidency? Well, here's a case in which the charges of misconduct, um, I think all of which proved to be without much of a basis, um, caught an eight-year administration up in unceasing defensiveness. Um, the IRS, um, if, at, if, if I understand it as fully as I should, it was... Um, it was a misperception on the part of the president's opponents as to what had happened. Solyndra was just a bad contract. Um, fast and Furious, I'm not certain we've ever learned the truth about that. thing is that these weren't corrupt, and if they were contrary to law, the administration at its highest levels was not caught up in it. Let's listen to Barack Obama on November 14, 2012. Defending himself. Uh, on Benghazi. If people don't think that we did everything we can to make sure that uh, we saved the lives of folks who I sent there and who were carrying out missions on behalf of the United States, then you don't know how our Defense Department thinks or our State Department thinks or our CIA thinks. Immediately upon finding out that our folks were in danger, that my orders to my national security team were do whatever we need to do to make sure they're safe. Well, there are those who will credit the president's statement and those who will not accept the statement. Um, I don't think there was any, ever any grounds of malfeasance. There certainly could have been errors made. There's certainly the defense of the, of the uh, legation uh, uh, there uh, in Benghazi were not sufficient. Surely. At this stage, uh, uh, Dr. Lickman's conclusion was poor judgment, mismanagement, and or incompetence, but not violations of law. I, I think that has to stand so far until we, until we discover something more. So we have only two minutes left. So when you look across all the work that you've done, and here you are um, at the latter days of a long career watching the American presidency and the American public's reaction to it, What's your level of uh, optimism, confidence about where we are as a country in terms of good governance? Well, I, I tend to be optimistic, and I suppose I could be charged with being 
occasionally Pollyannish. But I don't think that the record of misconduct in the American presidency um, is surprising. I don't take it to be overwhelming. It's clumped. It doesn't have trends. There are clean administrations and dirtier ones. There are administrations that prevent misconduct at the highest levels, others that don't. I don't see any trend. And um, I tend to think we're probably, and we've always been at about the same level of good conduct and misbehaving conduct, and that's what we're going to have to expect. No administration is going to be free of charges of malfeasance, nor is an administration going to be free of members who are caught up in scandal and, and charged under criminal and other law. The 1970 report was never seen by members of the Impeachment Inquiry Committee of House Judiciary. In this age, we are learned that Gerald Nadler, who is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, is considering grounds for impeachment. Will this report be delivered to him and to the members of that committee? I believe it already has been. And have you heard anything back from them? No, I have not. Thank you for being our guest. Um, we appreciate the hour of conversation. It was a pleasure to be with you and your audience. Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org.